Section 9, Adventures of a New Year's Eve, Parts 5 through 9, by Heinrich Schock, from Tales by Heinrich Schock, translated by Park Godwin, of stories by foreign authors, German Authors, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Jones. Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 1, by Various. Section 9. Part 5. Philip opened the paper, and read in it an order for five thousand dollars. He put it in his pocket, and thought, Well, it's a pity that I'm not a prince. Someone whispered in his ear, Your Royal Highness, we are both discovered. I shall blow my brains out. Philip turned round in amazement, and saw a negro at his side. What do you want, Mask? he asked in an unconcerned tone. I am Colonel Colt, whispered the negro. The marshal's wife has been chattering to Duke Herman, and he has been breathing fire and fury against us both. He is quite welcome, answered Philip. But the king will hear it all, sighed the negro. This very night I may be arrested and carried to a dungeon. I'll sooner hang myself. No need of that, said Philip. What? Am I to be made infamous for my whole life? I am lost, I tell you. The duke will demand entire satisfaction. He is black and blue yet with the marks of the cudgeling I gave him. I am lost, and the baker's daughter too. I'll jump from the bridge and drown myself at once. God forbid, answered Philip. What have you and the baker's daughter to do with it? Your Royal Highness banters me, and I am in despair. I humbly beseech you to give me two minutes' private conversation. Philip followed the negro into a small boudoir dimly lighted up with a few candles. The negro threw himself onto the sofa, quite overcome, and groaned aloud. Philip found some sandwiches and wine on the table, and helped himself with great relish. I wonder your Royal Highness can be so cool on hearing this cursed story. If that rascally Salmani was here, who acted the conjurer, he might save us by some contrivance, for the fellow was a bunch of tricks. As it is, he has slipped out of the scrape. So much the better, interrupted Philip, replenishing his glass. Since he has gone out of the way, we can throw all the blame on his shoulders. How can we do that? The Duke, I tell you, knows that you and I and the Marshal's wife and the baker's daughter were all in the plot together, to take advantage of his superstition. He knows that it was you that engaged Salmani to play the conjurer. That it was I that instructed the baker's daughter, with whom he is in love, how to inveigle him into the snare. That it was I that enacted the ghost, that knocked him down, and cudgelled him till he roared again. If I had only not carried the joke too far, but I wished to cool his love for my little sweetheart. Twas a devilish business. I'll take poison. Rather swallow a glass of wine. Tis delicious, said Philip, taking another tart at the same time. For to tell you the truth, my friend, I think that you're rather a white-livered sort of rogue for a colonel, to think of hanging, drowning, shooting, and poisoning yourself about such a ridiculous story as that. One of these modes would be too much, but as to all four, nonsense. I tell you that at this moment I don't know what to make out of your tale. Your Royal Highness, have pity on me! My brain is turned. The Duke's page, an old friend of mine, has told me at this very moment that the Marshal's wife, inspired by the devil, went to the Duke and told him that the trick played on him at the baker's house was planned by Prince Julian, who opposed his marriage to his sister, that the spirit he saw was myself, sent by the princess to be a witness of his superstition, that your Highness was a witness of his descent into the pit after hidden gold, and of his promise to make the baker's daughter his mistress, and also to make her one of the nobility immediately after his marriage with the princess. Do not hope to gain the princess. It is useless for you to try. The last words of the marshal's wife to the duke. And a pretty story it is, muttered Philip. Why, behavior like that would be a disgrace to the meanest of the people. I declare there is no end to these deviltries. Tis impossible to behave more meanly than the marshal's lady. The woman must be a fury. My gracious lord, save me from destruction. Where is the duke? asked Philip. The page told me he had started up on hearing the story, and said, I will go to the king. 
and if he tells the story to the king in his own way is the king here then oh yes he's at play in the next room with the archbishop and the minister of police philip walked the long steps through the boudoir the case required consideration your royal highness said the negro protect me your own honor is at stake you can easily make all straight otherwise i am ready at the first intimation of danger to fly across the border i will back up and to-morrow i shall expect your last commands as to my future behavior with these words the negro took his leave part six it is high time i were a watchman again thought philip i am getting both myself and my substitute into scrapes you will find it hard to get out of and this makes the difference between a peasant and a prince one is no better off than the other good heavens what a stupid thing these court lords are doing which we do not dream of with our lanterns and staff in hand or when at the spade we think they lead lives of angels without sin or care pretty piece of business within a quarter of an hour i have heard of more rascally tricks than i have ever played in my whole life but his reverie was interrupted by a whisper so lonely prince i consider myself happy in having a minute's conversation with your royal highness philip looked at the speaker and he was a miner covered over with gold and jewels but one instant said the mask the business is pressing and deeply concerns you who are you inquired philip count bardenonos the minister of finance at your highness's service answered the miner and showed his face which looked as if it were a second mask with its little eyes and copper-colored nose well then my lord what are your commands may i speak openly i waited on your royal highness thrice and was never admitted to the honor of an audience and yet heaven is my witness no man in all this court has a deeper interest in your royal highness than i have i am greatly obliged to you replied philip what is your business just now but be quick may i venture to speak at the house of abraham levi as much as you like they have applied to me about the fifty thousand dollars which you owe them and threatened to apply the king and you remember your promise to his majesty when he last paid your debts can't the people wait asked philip no more than the brothers goldsmiths who demand their seventy-five thousand dollars it is all one to me if the people won't wait for the money i must no hasty resolution my gracious lord i have it in my power to make everything comfortable if well if what if you will honour me by listening to, to me just one moment i hope to have no difficulty in redeeming all your debts the house of abraham levi has bought up immense quantities of corn so that the price is very much raised a decree against importation will raise it three or four per cent higher by giving abraham levi the monopoly the business will be arranged the house erases your debts and pays off your seventy five thousand dollars to the goldsmiths and i give you over the receipts but everything depends on my continuing for another year at the head of the finance if baron griefensack succeeds in ejecting me from the ministry i shall be unable to serve your royal highness as i could wish if your highness will leave the party of griefensack our point is gained for me it is a matter of perfect indifference whether i remain in office or not i sigh for repose but your royal highness it is a matter of great moment if i have not the mixing of the pack i lose the game philip for some time did not know what answer to make at last when the finance minister in expectation of his reply took a pinch out of his snuff-box set with jewels philip said if i rightly understand you sir count you would starve the country a little in order to pay my debts consider sir what misery you will cause and what will the king consent to it if i remain in office i will answer for that my gracious lord when the price of corn rises the king will of course think of permitting importation and prevent exportation by levying heavy imposts 
the permission to do so is given to the house of abraham levi and they export as much as they choose but as i said before if griefensack gets the help nothing can be done for the first year he would be obliged to attend strictly to his duty in order to be able afterwards to feather his nest at the expense of the country he must first make sure of his ground he is dreadfully grasping a pretty project answered philip and how long do you think a finance minister must be in office before he can lay his shears on the flock to get wool enough for himself and me oh if he has his wits about him he may manage it in a year then the king ought to be counselled to change his finance minister every twelve months, if he wishes to be faithfully and honourably served. I hope, your royal highness, that since I had the exquire, the king and the court have been faithfully served. I believe you, count, and the poor people believe you still more. Already they scarcely know how to pay their rates and taxes. You should treat us with a little more consideration, count. Us? Don't I do everything for the court? No, I mean the people. You should have a little more consideration for them. I appreciate what your royal highness says, but I serve the king and the court, and the people are not to be considered. The country is his private property, and the people are only useful him as increasing the value of the land. But this is no time to discuss old stories about the interests of the people. I beg your royal highness's answers to my propositions. Shall I have the honor to discharge your debts on the above specified conditions? Answer, no. Never, never, at the expense of hundreds and thousands of starving families. But, your royal highness, if, in addition to the clearance of your debts, I make the house of Abraham Levi present you with a fifty thousand dollars in hard cash, I think it may afford you that sum. The house will gain so much by the operation that perhaps it may be able to give you also a mark of its regard. Your highness is pleased to jest with me. I gain nothing by the affair. My whole object is to obtain the protection of your royal highness. You are very polite. I may hope, then, prince, my duty is to be of service to you. Tomorrow I shall send for Abram, and conduct the arrangement with him. I shall have the honor to present your royal highness with the receipts for all your debts, besides the gift of fifty thousand dollars. Go, I want to hear no more of it. And your royal highness will honor me with your favor, for unless I am in the ministry it is impossible for me to deal with Abraham Levi so as— I wish to heaven you and your ministry and Abraham Levi were all three in the Blocksburg. I tell you what, unless you lower the price of corn and take away the monopoly from that infernal Jew, I'll go this moment and reveal your villainy to the king, and get you and Abraham Levi banished from the country. See to it, I'll keep my word. Philip turned away in a rage, and proceeded into the dancing-room, leaving the minister of finance petrified with amazement. Part 7 When does your royal highness require the carriage? whispered a stout little Dutch merchant in a bobwig. Not at all, answered Philip. "'Tis after half-past eleven, and the beautiful singer expects you. She will tire of waiting. Let her sing something to cheer her. How, prince, have you changed your mind? Would you leave the captivating Rolina in the lurch and throw away the golden opportunity you have been sighing for for two months? The letter you sent today, enclosing the diamond watch, did wonders. The proud but fragile beauty surrenders. This morning you were in raptures, and now you are as cold as ice. What is the cause of the change?' "'That is my business, not yours,' said Philip. I had your orders to join you at half-past eleven. Perhaps you have other engagements? Perhaps. Ipatide super with the Countess Bourne? She's not present here, at least among all the masks I can't trace her out. I should know her among a thousand by that graceful walk and her peculiar way of carrying her little head, eh, prince? Well, but if it were so, there would be no necessity for making you my confidant, would there? I will take the hint and be silent. Won't you at any rate send to the Signora Rolina to let her know you are not coming? If I have sighed for her for two months, she'd better sigh a month or two for me. I shan't go near her. 
so that beautiful necklace which you sent her for a new year's present was all for nothing as far as i am concerned will you break with her entirely there is nothing between us to break that i know of well then since you speak so plainly i may tell you something which you, you perhaps know already your love for the signora has hitherto kept me silent but now that you have altered your mind about her i can no longer keep the secret from you you are deceived by whom by the artful singer she would divide her favours between your royal highness and a jew a jew yes with the son of abraham levi is that rascal everywhere so your highness did not know it but i am telling you the exact truth if it were not for the royal highness she would be his mistress i am only sorry you gave her that watch i don't regret it at all the jade deserves to be whipped few people get their deserts answered philip too true too true your royal highness for instance i have discovered a girl oh prince there is not such another in this city or in the whole world if you have seen this angel pooh rolina is nothing to her listen a, t a girl tall and slender as a palm tree with a complexion like the red glow of an evening upon snow eyes like sunbeams rich golden tresses in short the most beautiful creature i have ever beheld a venus a goddess in rustic attire your highness we must give her chase a peasant girl a mere rustic but then you must see her yourself and you will love her but my descriptions are nothing imagine the embodiment of all that you can conceive most charming add to that artlessness grace and innocence but the difficulty is to catch sight of her she seldom leaves her mother i know her seat in church and have watched her for many sundays past as she walked with her mother to the elm gate i have ascertained that a handsome young fellow a gardener is making court to her he can't marry her for he is a poor devil and she is nothing the mother is the widow of a poor weaver and the mother's name is widow bittner in milk street and the daughter fairest of flowers is in fact called rose philip's blood boiled at the sound of the beloved name his first inclination was to knock the communicative dutchman down he restrained himself however and only asked are you the devil himself tis good news is it not i have taken some steps in the matter already but you must see her first but perhaps such a pearl has not altogether escaped your keen observation do you know her intimately so much the better have i been too lavish of my praises you confess their truth she shan't escape us we must go together to the widow we must play the philanthropist you have heard of the widow's poverty and must insist on relieving it you take an interest in the good woman enter into her misfortunes leave a small present each visit and by this mean become acquainted with rose the rest follows of course the gardener can be easily got out of the way or perhaps a dozen or two dollars slipped quietly into his hand may philip's rage broke forth i'll throttle you if the gardener makes a fuss interposed the dutchman leave me to settle this matter i'll get him kidnapped and sent to the army to fight for his country in the meantime you get possession of the field for the girl has a peasant's attachment to the fellow and it will not be easy to get the nonsense out of her head which she has been taught by the canal but i will give her some lessons and then i'll break your neck your highness is too good but if your highness would use your influence with the king to procure me the chamberlain's key i wish i could procure you oh don't flatter me your highness had i only known your thought so much of her beauty she would be in yours yet long ago not a word more cried the enraged philip with in a smothered voice for he dared not speak loud he was so surrounded by maskers who were listening dancing talking as they passed him and he might have betrayed himself not a word more no there will be more than words deeds shall show my sincerity you may advance you are wont to conquer the outposts will be easily taken the gardener i will manage and the mother will range herself under your gilded banners then the fortress will be won 
"'Sir, if you venture,' said Philip, who now could hardly contain himself. It was with great difficulty he refrained from open violence, and he clutched the arm of the Dutchman with the force of a vice. "'Your Highness, for heaven's sake, moderate your joy. I shall scream. You are mashing my arm.' If you venture to go near that innocent girl, I will demolish every bone in your body. Good, good, screamed the Dutchman in intense pain. Only let go of my arm. If I find you anywhere near Milk Streak, I'll dash your miserable brains out, so look to it. The Dutchman seemed almost stupefied, trembling. He said, May it please your highness, I could not imagine you really loved the girl as it seems you do. I love her. I will own it before the whole world. Are you loved in return? That's none of your business. Never mention her name to me again. Do not even think of her. It would be a stain upon her purity. Now you know what I think. Be off. Philip twirled the unfortunate Dutchman round as he let go his arm, and that worthy gentleman slunk out of the hall. Part 9 In the meantime, Philip's substitute supported his character of watchman on the snow-covered streets. It is scarcely necessary to say that this was none other than the Prince Julian, who had taken a notion to join the watch, his head being crazed by the fire of the sweet wine. He attended to the directions left by Philip, and went his rounds, and called the hour with great decorum, except that, instead of the usual watchman's verses, he favoured the public with rhymes of his own. He cogitated a new stanza, when the door of a house beside him opened, and a well-wrapped-up girl beckoned to him, and ran into the shadow of the house. The prince left his stanza half-finished, and followed the apparition. A soft hand grasped his in the darkness, and a voice whispered, "'Good evening, dear Philip. Speak low, that nobody may hear us.' I've only gone away from the company for one moment to speak to you as you passed. Are you happy to see me? Blessed as God, my angel, who could be otherwise than happy by thy side? I've some good news for you, Philip. You must sup at our house tomorrow evening. My mother has allowed me to ask you. You'll come? For the whole evening, and as many more as you wish. Would we might all be together to the end of the world. It would be a life fit for the gods. Listen, Philip. In half an hour I shall be at St. Gregory's. I shall expect you there. You won't fail me. Don't keep me waiting long. We shall have a walk together. Go now. We may be discovered. She tried to go, but Julian held her back and threw his arms round her. What? Will thou leave me so coldly? He said, and tried to press a kiss upon her lips. Rose did not know what to think of this boldness, for Philip had always been modest, and never dared more than kiss her hand except once, when her mother had forbidden their meeting again. They had then exchanged their first kiss in great sorrow and in great love, but never since then. She struggled to free herself, but Julian held her firm, till at last she had to buy her liberty by submitting to the kiss, and begged him to go. But Julian seemed not at all inclined to move. What, to go? I'm not such a fool as that comes to. You think I'll love my horn better than you? No, indeed. But then it isn't right, Philip. Not right? Why not, my beauty? There is nothing against kissing in the Ten Commandments. Why, if we could marry, perhaps you might, but you well know that we can't marry, and— not marry why not you can marry me any day you like philip why will you talk such folly you know we must not think of such a thing but i think it very seriously about it if you would consent you are unkind to speak thus ah philip i had a dream last night a dream what was it you had won a prize in the lottery we were both so happy you had bought a beautiful garden handsomer than any in the city it was a little paradise of flowers and there were large beds of vegetables, and the trees were laden with fruit. And when I awoke, Philip, I felt so wretched. I wished I had not dreamed such a happy dream. You've nothing in the lottery, Philip, have you? Have you really won anything? The drawing took place today. How much must I have gained to win you, too? Ah, oh, Philip, 
if you had only gained a thousand dollars you might buy such a pretty garden a thousand dollars and what if it were more ah philip what is it true is it really don't deceive me twill be worse than the dream you had a ticket and you've won own it own it all that you can wish for rose flung her arms around his neck in the extremity of her joy and kissed him more than the thousand dollars and they will pay you the whole her kiss made the prince forget to answer it was so strange to hold a pretty form in his arms receive its caresses and to know that they were not meant for him answer me answer me cried rose impatiently will they give you all that money they've done it already and will add to your happiness i will hand it to you this moment what have you got it with you the prince took out his purse which he had filled with money in expectation of some play take it and weigh it my girl he said placing it in her hand and kissing her again this then makes you mine oh not this nor all the gold in the world if you are not my own dear philip and how if i had given you twice as much as all this money and yet were not your own dear philip i would fling the purse at your feet and make you a very polite curtsy said rose the door now opened the light streamed down the steps and the laughing of voices of girls were heard rose whispered in half an hour at st gregory's and ran up the steps leaving the prince in the darkness disconcerted by the suddenness of the parting and his curiosity excited by his ignorance of the name of his new acquaintance and not even having had a full view of her face he consoled himself with the revendus of st gregory's church door this he resolved to keep though it was evident that all the tenderness which had been bestowed on him was intended for his friend the watchman part nine the interview with rose or the coldness of the night increased the effect of the wine to such an extent that the mischievous propensities of the young prince got the upper hand of him standing amidst the crowd of people in the middle of the street he blew so lustily on his horn that the women screamed and the men gasped with fear he called the hour and then shouted at the top of his lungs the business of our lovely state is stricken by the hand of fate even our maids both light and brown can find no sale in all the town they deck themselves with all their arts but no one buys their worn-out hearts shame shame cried several female voices from the window at the end of this complimentary effusion which however was crowned with a loud laugh from the men bravo watchman cried some encore encore shouted others how dare you fellow insult ladies in the open street growled a young lieutenant who had a very pretty girl on his arm mr lieutenant answered the miller unfortunately watchmen always tell the truth and the lady on your arm is proof of it ha young jade do you know me do you know who i am is it right for a betrothed bride to be gadding about the streets with other men to-morrow your mother shall hear of this i have nothing more to do with you the girl hid her face and nudged the young officer to lead her away but the lieutenant like a brave soldier scorned to retreat from the miller and determined to keep the field he therefore made use of a full round of oaths which were returned with interest and a sabre was finally resorted to with some flourishes but two spanish cudgels were threateningly held over the head of the lieutenant by a couple of stout townsmen while one of them who was a broad-shouldered beer-brewer cried don't make any more fuss about the piece of goods beside you she ain't worth it the miller's a good fellow and what he says is true and the watchman's right too a plain tradesman can hardly venture to marry now all the women wish to marry above their station instead of darning stockings they read romances instead of working in the kitchen they run after comedies and concerts their houses are dirty and they're walking out dressed like princesses all they bring a husband as a dowry are handsome dresses lace ribbons intrigues romances and idleness sir i speak from experience i should have married long since if girls were not spoiled the spectators laughed heartily, and the lieutenant slowly put back his sword, saying peevishly, "'It's a little too much to be obliged to hear a sermon from the canal.' "'What? 
Canale? cried a smith, who held the second cudgel. Do you call those canale who feed you noble idlers by duties and taxes? Your licentiousness is the cause of our domestic discords, and noble ladies would not have so much cause to mourn if you had learned both to pray and to work. Several young officers had gathered together already, and so had some mechanics, and the boys, in the meantime, threw snowballs among both parties, that their share in the fun might not be lost. The first ball hit the noble lieutenant on the nose, and, thinking it an attack from the canile, he raised his saber. The fight began. The prince, who had laughed amazingly at the first commencement of the uproar, had betaken himself to another region, and felt quite unconcerned as to the result. In the course of his wanderings he came to the palace of Count Botenlos, the minister of finance, with whom, as Philip had discovered at the masquerade, the prince was not on the best terms. The countess had a large party. Julian saw the lighted windows, and still feeling poetically disposed, he planted himself opposite the balcony and blew a peal on his horn. Several ladies and gentlemen opened the shutters, because they had nothing better to do, and listened to what he should say. "'Watchmen!' cried one of them. "'Sing us a New Year's greeting!' This invitation brought a fresh accession of the countess's party to the windows. Julian called the hour in the usual manner, and sang, loud enough to be distinctly heard inside, "'Ye who groan with heavy debts, and swift approaching failure frets, pray the Lord that he this hour may raise you to some place of power, and while the nation wants and suffers, fill your own from the people's coffers.' "'Outrageous!' screamed the lady of the minister. "'Who is this insolent wretch that dares such an insult?' "'Please, your excellency,' answered Julian, imitating the Jewish dialect in voice and manner, "'I was only intendish to sing you a pretty song. I am she Abraham Levi, well known at this court. Your ladyship knows me very well.' "'How dare you tell such a lie, you villain!' exclaimed a voice, trembling with rage at one of the windows. "'How dare you say you are Abraham Levi! I am Abraham Levi! You are a cheat!' "'Call the police!' cried the countess. Have that man arrested! At these words the party confusedly withdrew from the windows, nor did the prince remain where he was, but quickly effected his escape through a cross-street. A crowd of servants rushed out of the palace, led by the secretaries of the finance minister, and commenced the search for the offender. "'We have him!' cried some, as the rest eagerly approached. It was, in fact, the real guardian of the night, who was carefully perambulating his beat, in innocent unconsciousness of any offence. In spite of all he could say, he was disarmed and carried off to the watch-house, and charged with causing a disturbance by singing libellious songs. The officer of the police shook his head at the unaccountable event, and said, "'We have already one watchman in custody, whose verses about some girl caused a very serious affray between the townspeople and the garrison.' The prisoner would confess to nothing, but swore prodigiously at the tipsy young people who had disturbed him in the fulfillment of his duty. One of the secretaries of the finance minister repeated the whole verse to him. The soldiers standing about laughed aloud, but the ancient watchman swore with tears in his eyes that he had never thought of such a thing. While the examination was going on, and one of the secretaries of the finance minister began to be doubtful whether the poor watchman was really in fault or not, an uproar was heard outside, and loud cries of, Watch! Watch! The guard rushed out, and in a few minutes the field marshal entered the office, accompanied by the captain of the guards on duty. "'Have that scoundrel locked up tight,' said the marshal, pointing behind him, and two soldiers brought in a watchman, whom they held close prisoner, and whom they had disarmed of his staff and horn. "'Are the watchmen gone all mad to-night?' exclaimed the chief of police. "'I'll have the rascal punished for his infamous verses,' said the field marshal angrily. "'Your Excellency,' exclaimed the trembling watchman, "'as true as I live, I never made a verse in my born days.' "'Silence, knave!' roared the marshal. "'I'll have you hanged for them!' and if you contradict me again, I'll cut you in two on the spot. 
the police officer respectfully observed to the field marshal that there must be a poetical epidemic among the watchmen for three had been brought in before him within the last quarter of an hour accused of the same offence gentlemen said the marshal to the officers who had accompanied him since the scoundrel refuses to confess it will be necessary to take down from your remembrance the words of his atrocious libel let them be written down while you still recollect them come who can say them the officer of police wrote to the dictation of the gentleman who remembered the whole verses between them on empty head a flaunting feather a long queue tied with tape and leather padded breast and waist so little make the soldier to a tittle by cards and dance and dissipation he's sure to win a martial station do you deny you rascal cried the field marshal to the terrified watchman do you deny that you sang these infamous lines as i was coming out of my house they may sing it who like it was not me said the watchman why did you run away then when you saw me i did not run away what said the two officers who had accompanied the marshal not run away were you not out of breath when we last laid hold of you there by the market yes but it was with right at being so ferociously attacked i am trembling yet in every limb lock the obstinate dog up till morning said the marshal he will come to his senses by that time with these words the wrathful dignitary went away these incidents had set the whole police force of the city on kiviv in the next ten minutes two more watchmen were brought to the office on similar charges with the others one was accused of singing a libel under the window of the minister of foreign affairs in which it was insinuated that there were no affairs to which he was more foreign than those of his own department the other had sung some verses before the door of the bishop's palace informing him that the lights of the church were by no means deficient in tallow but gave a great deal more smoke than illumination the prince who had wrought the poor watchman all this woe was always lucky enough to escape and grew bolder and bolder with every new attempt the affair was talked of everywhere the minister of police who was at cards with the king was informed of the insurrection among the hitherto peaceful watchmen and as a proof of it some of the verses were given to him in writing the king laughed very heartily at the doggerel verse about the miserable police who were always putting their noses into other people's family affairs but could never smell anything amiss in their own and were therefore lawful game and ordered that the next poetical watchman who should be taken to be brought before him he broke up the card table for he saw that the minister of police had lost his good humor end of section nine parts five through nine adventures of a new year's eve